Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Matt Stein with Pixel and Tonic. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. I'm Michael Rogg from Build for Humans in Texas. And today we are joined by three guests. Andrew Welch is from NY Studio 107, and the careful listener may also recognize his voice from every Dev Mode podcast. <laughs> Evan Wine is the esteemed co-founder and director of technology at Architect, and Brad Bell is very active in the craft CMS community, largely because of his role as chief technology officer at Pixel and Tonic. This episode, we are going to discuss events that took place earlier this month when Andrew made a huge mistake. Kick things off Jesus. with a question for Andrew. <laughs> A mistake. You're, <laughs> you're Where standing, is Andrew? <laughs> why you just called me what my dad called me? How dare you? <laughs> you're standing six feet from the next person in line at Nick Tahoe's in Rochester, New York, waiting to pick up your triple cheeseburger garbage plate. You're thinking about how you've never washed your coronavirus mask when someone <laughs> yells, bursts in the door, throws a fistful of confetti, and yells, "I just finished reading CVE 2020-12790, and I use SEOmatic everywhere. What do I need to do?" <laughs> what do you do, Andrew? What you need to do is have a maintenance contract with your clients and to update SEOmatic and all your plugins, not just SEOmatic, and craft CMS to their latest versions. That seems kind of preachy. Let's let's take a step <laughs> back. What happened? What what is this we're talking about? What is CVE 2020-12790? So it's basically pointing out a what's called an SSTI. And Brad, if I get any of this wrong, feel free to to chime in. And that's a server-side template injection. And what that basically means is there's a way that someone can craft a URL payload where they can cause it to, if SEOmatic is installed, if actually if specific versions of SEOmatic are installed, they can cause it to execute arbitrary code that will, can do stuff is essentially what that what that is about. And how did you first find out about this? I was contacted by a researcher about it. I think it was first God, it might have been the end of 2019, something like that. And I did fix the vulnerability. I fixed it immediately and it was all fixed. The problem happened several months later that there was a regression which caused it to happen again. And was that something that changed in SEOmatic or? Yeah, correct. Okay. So basically the way that this whole chain of events, in order for it to work, the way that the whole thing works is that SEOmatic, in order to allow flexibility, a lot of the fields that are passed into it are parsed as twig templates. And that allows you to do a lot of really cool stuff because you can just like for a URL title in craft, you can put twig code in there that can do various things. And it ends up being really useful for the SEO fields that are in the plugin. And in order to, and then another thing that needs to be present for this vulnerability to work is that Yi on their view class has a, a method that allows you to essentially do an exec. It allows you to run arbitrary code. And that's built into every version of Yi 2 and by convection, by what? By something? Inheritance? Inheritance. Also in Craft CMS, there was recently a PR that Michael did that deprecates that function. So you have to specifically enable it if you want that functionality. Because like, I don't know, I mean, potentially it could be used for bad, kind of as it was in this case. Uh, what do you mean by that? How was it used for bad? I thought this was just a CVE that was... Yeah, just you know, put in no, 4 so plus the way 8 it, and it spits out 12. So the way that it works is that you, you craft the payload 
to send into one of the meta container endpoints, which is an endpoint in SEOmatic that allows you to get all of the SEO information back in either array or, or text format. And if you craft it correctly, you can put Twig code in there that can then be executed. And the Twig code that this particular attack put in there is something that then exploited that little functionality that is in the view class that allows it to execute arbitrary code. And they were causing this thing to go out and download other code and run it. So which is be, not- because crafts requests or because crafts view service extends the ye view component and also because in crafts twig, you have the craft.app variable that exposes all of crafts components. You can call a craft.app.view and get that, what was it, render dynamic content method or something and just run any any PHP that you want. Right. Yeah, I, I, I will say that the evaluate dynamic content method is the most <laughs> obvious way to use this exploit. And I think it's mm. because a lot of, you know, security researchers, the first thing they do is search for PHP's eval function and yeah. they find that they try and use it. Mm-hmm. Yep. But because you have access to craft.app and the full power of Twig, it's, there's an infinite other number of things you, you could have done as well. So including they, I, but not limited to un, uninstall craft. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could do like I, that, that method is an easy target and it has been disabled by default in the upcoming craft 3.5, but it's by no means the, the only method of ex, exploitation. Wasn't it also disabled by default in a recent release of 3.4? Oh, maybe it was 3.4. I forget. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was snuck in there, right? Yeah. My, uh, Michael, because you did a PR. I'm, I'm, yeah. And and I think Brandon ultimately did not use my PR. He did something similar, but used a, a class variable instead of a config variable, which hmm. I actually like better because it's so niche. Like nobody right. nobody will ever right. like ever need to do this. But you you mentioned something, and I was not. I think this is a piece of the story that I missed. Usually, in order to get craft.app, you you need to be in a privileged context to begin with. But did you did did SEOmatic have a controller that let the world submit some template and get back a parsed version of that template? Like, was that a a public facing controller? Yeah, that's exactly why it happened. And that's why it's such a bad vulnerability. What is the use case for SEOmatic to expose that to the world? Is it like for JavaScript apps or something? Right. Like yeah. when, so when, when, a, when would I use that under normal circumstances? Under normal circumstances, you probably would not. And and actually, I disabled that endpoint by default in a recent version for the same reason, not even for a security reason, because that's not really security. Disabling a feature that is insecure is not really security. <laughs> but just because there was no real point in it, kind of like you're, you're mentioning, the vast majority of people are never even going to use this endpoint functionality. So I made it an opt-in thing now. Now you actually have to turn it on. And turning it on doesn't make it vulnerable because the issue has been has been fixed. But I just didn't see a reason to have the meta container endpoints on by default. Let's, let's not dwell on it being fixed. Let's talk about how bad it was. Nevin, you host a lot of craft sites. Uh, did you see any <laughs> real world... Uh, Jesus. implications of this? <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, starting, I can't remember what day it was now. I think it was, I want to say it was June 3rd. Staff contacted me because we noticed large spikes in CPU usage that was a little unusual for most of our physical servers that are powering our clients. So we 
dug in and started investigating and found what, I guess in the back of my head, I originally, as a hosting provider, thought that it might be a WordPress vulnerability. <laughs> uh, oh, that hurts so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's, let's just state that over the last 15 or plus so years, 99, greater than 99% of sites that we've had that are compromised or WordPress based. So initially, we just started looking at see which accounts were showing high CPU use noticed that pretty much all of them were actually our craft optimized plans. So more likely than not, they're only running craft or at least running a copy of craft. So we dug in normal investigation just to see what was running and found a misspelled they were trying to hide it as a watchdog process, but it was spelled, what was it spelled? It was W-A-T-O-H dog. Yeah, Watto dog. <laughs> Watto dog, yeah. Burning, uh, basically there was a process for each virtual CPU in a virtual server. So if someone had a four VCUPU plan, they had four of these running at 100% CPU usage and as much RAM as they could actually use, which was obviously a little unusual. But when you end up with a large number of craft sites that are consolidated into our physical hosts, you start burning a lot of CPU cores. I reached out to Brad just to find out if there would have been any recent patches on craft or any popular plugins or anything that they had heard about. And I can't remember the first one you mentioned, Brad. It was a less popular plugin. Yeah, the first one was a vCard plugin. And then the other one was SEOmatic. So we just started looking into compromised accounts to see if they had one or the other or both. And all of the ones that were active at the time had SEOmatic installed. Interesting. It, what what was Wattohog actually doing? Other, I mean, it was obviously consuming a lot of resources, but did you have any indication what it was? No, initially I wasn't sure what it was. You know, we just saw it running in each system. Once we started, once we knew that was actually what was going on, we looked at it closer. And I think Andrew actually helped track down some of the, yep. the payload that was actually being run. We found, a, we found a URL request on at least two of the sites immediately that pointed to how they basically triggered the remote code to be downloaded and executed. Yeah, they were using a, a website called Pastebin, which is a popular place where you can just dump stuff. And they were dumping the script code to be executed there. And Brad may be able to speak more about this, but I know a little bit about the way the hacking world works. And usually what they do is they have these scripts that do stuff, right? So for instance, this one, I think ended up doing Bitcoin mining or whatever. And then whenever a new vulnerability is found, they whip up a little bot that is going to go crawl the internet looking for this vulnerability. And then they'll pick and choose from a, a menu of different malicious or profitable things or scripts that these things could run and they'll suck it in there and they'll do something with it. So basically just write a recipe and then kind of try it in whatever. Yeah. I mean, this is where, so we used to call them script kitties because they're we someone would who, well, someone <laughs> who really knew what they were doing would write the script, but then the script kitties, like the people that actually went and did stuff with it, didn't really necessarily have to know how any of this stuff worked. They could just grab this recipe and just start using it. And that's become even more automated where now it's just bots that just do it. You know, like bots are just <laughs> fed stuff and they're just constantly searching for it. But it's also become commercialized, right? So they're not just doing it to compromise machines and get botnets so they can do denial of service attacks. They're also doing other stuff like, in this case, Bitcoin mining, right, Nevin? You, you found out that that's what they were yeah, doing actually, with it? I, I think this was called Monero or something along those lines, but basically mm -hmm. a cryptocurrency. I don't know. It, it's actually, this is 
the first time we've actually seen anyone actually do that sort of mining on a compromised site. Normally, people want to keep resources available. Ninety, basically, all of the all of the previous attempts. You know, you go back fifteen or twenty years. Everyone wanted to deface a website to show that they right. hacked the website. And then, in the intervening decade, decade and a half, everyone basically was leaving what we generally just called leave behind scripts. So it's usually a PHP shell script. So mm-hmm. they can do anything that they want at some point in the future. Could be sending spam. Could be a botnet. Could just be they want to stick uh, phishing websites on it randomly at some point. Those- we used to call these zombies we call the like sites that had been compromised we called them zombie sites i don't know if that's the terminology that you use but yeah they would leave a web shell open so that they could then this was effectively now theirs to do whatever it is they wanted them to do and they'd usually leave behind a handful or a dozen or more to where if you found one there'd be another one somewhere else on the site so cleaning it was a little more uh, interesting in this case we didn't find any of those in this case it was literally a script that just seemed to download the payload, install the cron job to trigger it if it got killed, and then set up, uh, basically just seemed to make sure that it wanted to keep running the mining operation as long as possible. But it calls attention to itself. I mean, if you're if it's burning all your CPU and using a, most of your RAM, you're going to notice your website's slow or your host is going to notice that CPU is spiked or at least we hope you do. Usually they're smarter about it, which is interesting. You know, a lot of people have the idea of like the genius hacker who's able to break in. But again, a lot of this is just someone else. They, they comb looking for vulnerabilities that some other person has found and then they use scripts that some other person has written and it doesn't take a genius to like put these things together and then compromise the site to or try to compromise sites to do what it is you want them to do. And as soon as Brad sent sure. me something from the logs, I was I was two things. So so one, I felt terrible that I was responsible for what had happened here. But two, I was mad. <laughs> like this had happened. So I wanted to figure out what was going on. So I took the payload they were injecting and I decoded it and I kind of traced down the rabbit hole to ultimately get the scripts that were being executed. And I sent them to Brad and Nevin so they could take a look at them so they would have a good idea of, uh, you know, how to how to deal with it. So if we focus on how Andrew screwed up. <sighs> I, th- yeah, I shouldn't treat the witnesses hostile. <laughs> uh, <laughs> This is, I don't want to pile too much on Andrew because it's, it, it happens in software and, you know, it's, it's eventually going to happen to craft itself as well. But this, this is the first actively known exploit out in the wild for craft. Like we've definitely had security issues, you know, reported and fixed, but no known exploits up until, up until this one. So we, it's a sign of, let's say maturity. I mean, sure. it's it, yeah, it, it certainly, it certainly doesn't. It still doesn't feel good. And I'm still, it's the first time and I've been coding for forever. And it's the first time I've ever done anything that has impacted other people in this way. So I'm just, you know, I, I've been kind of, kind of bummed about the whole thing, but I'm doing everything that I can to try and fix the, the situation. And, and actually what annoys me the most is that when I initially fixed this issue, I really wish that I had set up some kind of a unit test for that particular part of the code so that I would have detected this regression immediately because the, the real issue was it wasn't so, you know, I immediately I fixed the issue when it was made known to me. The problem was a, a completely unintentional change somewhere else caused the regression and caused the issue to come back. And that's what I regret more than anything is I wish I had put some kind of unit test on that particular area of the code. 
And so, and I know as uncomfortable as it makes me, I know Andrew that you follow best practices and have years and years and years of development experience and are sensitive to security issues. But would you classify this as kind of like just a, a derpy mistake or something that you happen not to think about, or is this a more nuanced thing that could have eluded anyone and been a matter of catching it with with you know testing for regression or you know is this a mistake that that anybody could make or an oversight or I don't know like how how did it ultimately happen. Was it just not well, uh, testing? As, well, as I was mentioning before, it kind of was a, a whole series of events had to happen, right? So one of the things that had to happen is I had to create a external controller API in order to be able to access this. And I, I created that in response to the need or the, the emergence of headless CMSs where they would need an endpoint to be able to, to get at this stuff. And then also you needed to mix in that I decided to use Twig as something that could be used for parsing the uh, fields that were in SEOmatic. And then you'd have to layer on top of that the fact that in the Twig environment by default, if you don't create a sandbox environment, the craft.app, all of that is available. And then you'd have to layer on top of that the fact that there is also this function in the ye view, which is available off of craft.app.view that allows you to execute arbitrary code. And now as Brad was saying, yeah, there that's the most obvious vector point. But the fact that you just have access to Twig externally in itself is a problem. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I never thought that this is something that anyone would be doing. If I did, <laughs> then I would have coded around it. And, you know, I mean, it is what it is. But that's usually the bugs that I run into are things that I didn't even think about happening. You know, I didn't assume that this is some, some way that this could be exploited. And so I think that's the nature of exploits. I mean, that's what every kind of exploit is, is that people have coded stuff and they they never realized that someone would try to do like a buffer overrun, which would cause it to seg fault, which would, you know, I mean, that's really kind of how exploits happen. Well, there is a, there is, I'm sorry, there is another aspect to this too. And if I'm not mistaken, Andrew, this was actually fixed again, I guess, at yep. the end of April. Yep. And we didn't actually see active exploits of this until the beginning of June. Yeah. The thing is, is that a lot of the clients that we ended up finding that were impacted, some of them were still running SEOmatic versions back to like 2018. Mm. Right. Okay. So this could have been avoided by most of the clients that were impacted if there were routine updates done. And yeah. I can guarantee you right now on our servers, we still have people that are running SEOmatic before 3.3.0. They just yeah, and that's why compromised. <laughs> and that's why I answered the question when Matt originally asked it the way that I did, because it's not just SEOmatic, it's also everything. Like the, the real way, the best way to keep things secure, in addition to following best practices, is keeping things updated. And a lot of the machines that end up getting compromised are just old, outdated stuff. I mean, there could be exploits in Ubuntu or any number of places in the stack, and the, you know, it's not 100% foolproof. But the best way to avoid this is to constantly keep things updated. Yes. As a hosting provider, I tend to laugh because one of the first questions we get is, if we can tell people exactly what our patch schedule is and if we keep the stack secure, and in the past 20 years, almost 100%, if not 100% of compromised websites is be be at the application level, not right. server level. Right. All of the WordPress sites that I joked about earlier being hacked were all because they were running outdated versions of plugins. I mm -hmm. only think of one where it was actually a core WordPress issue. Mm. 
all the rest of them were because they were running either some random one-off plugin that some guy wrote that gotta get that get that photo slider man yeah or you know something or it could have been like, <laughs> like in this case it a, a number of them were extremely popular wordpress plugins like this yeah. was an extremely popular craft plugin but 99% of the time if i go back and i look at pre-sales of people asking us about our patching systems and stuff if i go back and look at those clients now i'll almost bet money that they will be severely behind in craft and plugin patches right can we make the analogy that keeping your software up to date is the equivalent of wearing a mask in public? <laughs> just just do it. Yeah, it's preventative. Yeah. Yeah. So aside from that, one thing that, you know, obviously when something like this is in the wild, time is of the essence. I had a client who actually reached out to me. I just checked my inbox on April 28th. So, you know, again, we talk about, you know, like wearing a mask, like people say, oh, what if we had started weeks earlier? Are there things both Andrew and Brad that you think that either NY Studio or Pixel and Tonic could have done better in terms of when we first knew that there was an issue, making it clear. And I think part of it may have been that no one realized that there was the uh, run PHP right on the server and start installing cryptocurrency miners angle to it. But are there things that you're now looking at and thinking, okay, if and when there is another time, or let's say when there's another time that there's a vulnerability, how can we make sure that we're on the horn and let people who are running craft software or NY Studio software and let them know early? We, We only knew about it, I think, as early as we did because this client is in the security space. And I think one of these researchers actually reached out to them to let them know that they were running running vulnerable software. But otherwise, I I haven't had a single client since the end of April talk to me about this. I think we honestly, I don't even know if they're the only client that's ever said, hey, we just got this note that we're running old SEOmatic, you know, let's patch it. Where do you think you can either should have done better or are now doing things differently? Or, you know, are there still plays like if this happened again tomorrow, if you know, whether whatever plug in, you know, that's widely installed had a large vulnerability? Are you ready for the next one? So I'll, I'll go first. So the, the person that you're talking to, the consultant, is actually the person that reported the bug mm-hmm. to, to me originally, you know, back in, in 2019. And then I immediately fixed it. And one of the things that I think I could have done better, which I mentioned before, is had a unit test around this critical piece where it would check to make sure that Twig was not getting parsed from an untrusted source. I think that is something that I could have and should have done. The other thing is, so I anytime there's a security update, I do mark it as security in the feed. But the one thing I didn't do for this is I didn't mark it as critical. And in retrospect, I wish that I had. The reason why I didn't is it was just a it was a regression from something that had already been fixed. And I just didn't, you don't know that it's going to turn into a big problem until it does, I guess, you know, because if you mark everything as critical, then people are just going to start ignoring that so i don't i don't know sure one other question before we go to brad so you know obviously yeah we didn't know it was in there you know hadn't put yourself maybe in the thought of someone who's looking to do harm and find vulnerabilities have you considered doing maybe once a year however you know any sort of vulnerability scan of the software having someone who you know is incentivized to try to find holes i'm sure you're doing that yourself but is there anything you're considering or do you think you are pretty well covered in terms of any other possible vectors if any it's something that i've considered doing i haven't taken any action on it. And actually the person that I was ironically considering talking to, to doing this is the one that reported it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hire him to do it. The other thing that I had considered doing, and I'm still not really sure whether it's a good idea or not, is oh, no, that you, what? 
Not Michael Rogg. No, 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 no. Okay. The the other thing that I'm considering <laughs> that I'm still not sure if it might be a good idea or not is the other thing I could do is I could run Twig in a sandboxed environment where it, it would only have access to the things that I tell it it can have access to. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I wish that I had done when I first made the plugin because doing it now is actually could potentially be troublesome because I have allowed people to do whatever they want. So there, it may be a breaking change for a number of sites. If I suddenly sandbox it and they're using some functionality that I don't have a proxy for that will go out through. So I'm still kind of evaluating that and deciding whether that's a good idea or not. I mean, I could do it and have it be on by default for new sites, but old sites would have to opt in. I mean, that's that's potentially something I could do. Once upon a time, Craft did, back in Craft 2, if I recall, actually to solve a very similar vulnerability. In, in the case of Craft 2, it was dynamic form return URLs were getting parsed as twig object templates. And so in Craft 2, there was this concept introduced a twig running in safe mode where you only had access to to twig and the object and not to any of crafts craft dot variables i wonder if and i know now commerce is also doing a similar thing because there's the zip code field and some of the shipping method settings yep. get parsed as as twig object templates and and they're sandboxing twig for that so i wonder if it wouldn't be nice to just have a first party twig safe mode again in in craft 3 i wonder if anybody's considering introducing something like that yeah i mean we've talked about options like it, it likely wouldn't happen until craft four mainly for the same reason that andrew mentioned that it's going to break all sorts of stuff and then it's it's might have to be like a like enabled by default and you you know you might have to disable it if you want the old behavior but yeah it's tricky the i if i recall the one you're talking about in craft two was it was like the one place on the front end i think it was with a, a redirect tag i think where we would actually kind of mm. let you we would parse kind of front end input as twig in in craft 3 all of the places that we allow it like uri formats and everything that's all currently within in the context of like you have to be an administrator and you have to have administrator access to get to those sections of the control panel and in general we assume that administrators are to be trusted. Now, a a lot of people in the security industry take the don't trust anyone approach. Mm. So if somehow you can you know, hijack an administrator account through whatever it means, which is kind of like where the allow admin changes config setting comes in. So like once you're on production, you know, we recommend that's set to false anyway. So mm-hmm. at that point, nobody can make even any administrator changes. So yeah, like it's always, I feel like, you know, we get, I don't know, a dozen security reports a month mm-hmm. and 99% of them are not valid, I would say. Yeah, let me let me mention something about that real quick, Brad, because this was something that I was new to and I didn't understand the way the industry worked until I started seeing some of these come in. And apparently the way it works is that there are security researchers that what they do is their full-time job is they go out and they look for vulnerabilities. And then once they have them, they want to be credited on the submission to this uh, CV uh, meter CV site. And the weird thing is some of those emails that are coming in, they really sound like 
marketing emails to some extent. They seem like someone's trying to sell you something. And so at least from my perspective, when I first was introduced to this, I was just like, um, are these actually real? <laughs> because some of the stuff that I got, it just seemed like nonsense. And so it's just something to keep in mind is that there are people out there that have a financial interest in their name being attached on something that may or may not be a vulnerability. Have you run into that? Where I mean, it sounds like you have, where a lot of the stuff that you get is just silly. Oh, yeah. Especially because like we do have an official bug bounty policy. Yeah. And so like valid ones, you know, we do want to reward responsible reporting and and like give some sort of, of benefit for that. But the flip side is that attracts that many more yeah. reports as well, too. Yeah. And they want their name and their company name on the CVE because apparently it boosts something. You know, I don't even understand how that helps them, I guess, reputation wise. But for me, it was kind of like a boy who cried wolf kind of thing where I was seeing this stuff come in and I was like, should I actually be paying attention to this? Because like 90% of it is nonsense. Yeah, it's it's hard to filter. The signal to noise ratio is pretty yeah. skewed. So it's hard to filter through there, you know, especially as small development company, yeah. right? Because you, you, you have to have the resources to kind of treat every report as potentially valid because there is a chance, like, because the consequences of you being wrong are pretty bad, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, but getting getting back to what you're talking about before about sandbox, like I was thinking about something like if there was a craft.app.view.render sandbox object template or something like that. You know, like a craft provided. Does that sound like what you're looking for, Michael? Like a craft provided safe way to render Twig? Yeah, because that's that's actually how it how it was in Craft Two. Is you would just pass like a third parameter that was a boolean that said mm. yes, do this in safe mode. And all of the cases that were covered now in Craft Three, all of the things that used to object template parse input from the world are now validated parameters. So the form redirect input goes into your Twig template and gets encrypted. And so when it shows up on the front end, it's an encrypted value that gets resubmitted and then decrypted and then craft parses it and goes on its merry way or whatever. So the reason for that safe mode in craft two was kind of mooted in craft three or or so we thought, but now it looks like maybe there there might be a good reason to bring it back and have craft provide a, a sandboxed twig if you ask for it that just gives you twig and nothing, none of the plugin ex- uh, twig extensions, none of crafts mm. twig extensions, so you don't get the craft.app variable or whatever. I guess you could you could tune it so that you get crafts filters because a lot of them are are pretty safe and don't give you any access to internals but are still useful and so may it may not be just a completely naked twig object like it might have some slight additions but but yeah I think just a a safe mode for crafts own twig which would actually just be returning you a completely different twig object. That's where my brain ended too, because I was like, well, I really would love if they provided the sandbox, but then I was like, well, what should be enabled in that sandbox? And I kept thinking about it. I'm like, well, parts of craft.app probably would be really useful to have in there. And I couldn't really come up with a generic sandbox that would still be useful. And then I was just like, well, maybe it should be just left up to plugin developers, kind of like what commerce is doing, where they're specifically opting into only the things that they want. And then I 
when I vacillated back and I said, well, but if if isn't this isn't provided as first party, probably very few people are going to go through the effort to use it. So maybe there should be a super generic sandbox. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's the you know balance of flexibility for the end users versus hardline security where it's always that balance, right? Like we've even thought about taking Twig out of the picture completely and just coming up with our own kind of domain specific oh, syntax no. language where because like Symfony has this expression <laughs> language component where, okay, then we got we could have that as a layer that sits on top of a sandbox twig or something or i don't know hmm. parse order i, I have good. a parse order presentation yeah, yeah. <laughs> ready for the next dot all whenever you do that right the convulsions yeah. right now uh, you know I, mean, this... look, I think in the meantime what we do what we can do is the same thing that craft is doing now when it needs to accept some submission from the world that and and parse it is as a developer i put the thing in my template and I encrypt it with my security key. And so the only thing that the browser and the world sees is this string of gobbledygook, but then my JavaScript application can submit it back to the server and it gets decrypted. And if somebody messed with it, then you get an exception. But if it's still valid, then then you can trust that it came from, from a trusted source in the first place and you can parse it. And if you needed to do some twig parsing on a public controller endpoint, like that's how I would do it. That's for example, that's how a lot of e-commerce plugins will let you as a developer spin up some dynamic thing to charge with Stripe or, or something. And you ha- you want to be able to put it in your template and and then pass it to the world, but know when it comes back that somebody didn't didn't mess with it. Yeah, and I want to make a ge- ge- kind of generic comment on what we were talking about before in terms of updating stuff. And I'm not obviating my responsibility at all. I made mistakes or things that I can be doing better and I feel I do feel terrible about what has gone on with this, this exploit. However, it's just a matter of time that some exploit in something is going to be found in the stack of things that you use to build your website if you mm-hmm. just leave it there and never update it. It's an inevitability. I mean, there are, there are people that are finding bugs in Ubuntu or in, in core Linux, and they're only finding them like 10 or 12 years later. It's going to happen eventually. So the best thing, in my opinion, that you can do is keep everything updated and have some kind of a, a maintenance contract with your with your clients. Yeah. So to that question my original question wasn't what you know what should we have done in terms of sandboxing twig or bringing back mm. ease parse order or whatever it is it was if we had a month and knew from a security perspective and you can say well we didn't know what a large vulnerability this was at the time but if we did or if, if another one comes down the line mm. is there a good way to get the word out and get ahead of this before it really explodes. And the reason I say that, you know, right now you can keep an eye on Kraft's RSS feed, and there's the change log, but, uh, you know, one thing that I think maybe Pixel and Tonic has to look at is, as they grow, someone like Drupal has a dedicated page for security advisories, and when there are vulnerabilities found, they actually time those, I think it's like on the 15th of every month, security patches come, and on otherwise, it's feature releases, and that way, people who want to stay secure know they can time things to that, and they, they let people know in advance pretty widely, hey, there's a big one coming. We're going to announce it at this time. We expect 
you know, hope you upgrade quickly. The other part that I think right now is a little bit tough is that there's not a great way to stay abreast of what security patches have come out for plugins. And I don't know if, if there's an opportunity with the plugin store to be able to know based on craft IDs and recent CP usage, who is running things that have that and let them know. And I think it could also be good to make sure that people are staying up to date and you know keeping their plugins updated and subscriptions up to date. You know, we, Andrew, we've talked about this was a big push for people to actually, oh, let, let me get those su- support updates for SEOmatic that I've been putting off for a year or year and a half or whatever. I, I think there may be some things that need to be looked at just to make sure that people can be proactive and know when these things are coming down the line. Yeah. So short term, what we did for this one in, in particular was we did query to, to see all control panel activity that had SEOmatic installed within the affected version range. And we sent out an email to everyone that is affected saying, hey, you should update. There's there's an active exploit out. And Andrew did mark the release as critical. And so what that'll do for all craft installs is it gets special treatment in the control panel that kind of draws attention to like, hey, this is, this is important. And so we've, we've only, so I think that's the Second time I'm I'm aware of that that's been used. We've used it once for our for craft itself. Another short term fix is we do want to set up a kind of security uh, mailing list that people mm-hmm. can subscribe to to get advisories for this type of thing. GitHub I don't know how recently it was added, but I just recently found out about it. They have a new security advisory thing built into the repo mm-hmm. that people can, yeah, and so right. people report stuff and and the person it'll kind of be private between the person that reported it and the repo owner up until you're ready to make it public as an official advisory. Now, granted, that would, so like all plugins would have to kind of kind of manage that on their own behalf, which isn't ideal. But long-term, yeah, we do want to build it kind of into Craft ID. So where if there is an advisory that comes out and then Craft ID is aware of the plugins you have installed and the versions, then you would get a notification there as well. If I could, Brad, something that I think could be potentially useful for people who are Craft Partners Mm -hmm. is that if you are a Craft Partner, you are automatically enrolled in that security email. Just from the point of view that clients that are picking a someone to build the site for them, that's something they could say that, you know, we're, we're a craft partner, we get the heads up on all the security notices and updates, you know what I mean? It would be a selling point for them to incentivize clients to go with a craft partner, which would then incentivize the craft partners to have maintenance contracts and keep things up to date. So two, two questions. One, one for Andrew. Did you write your regression test yet? Did you do it? No, I did not. All right. Well, I appreciate the honesty. (laughs) Well, well, okay. So, and the reason why I did not is that retrofitting testing to the plugin where there was no testing to begin with is a decent amount of work. It is on my list of things to do. I definitely am going to get that taken care of soon, but it's not simple. If it was simply create a test and throw it in there, then I would have done it already. This is Andrew from the future. And I just wanted to let everyone know that I did implement the testing in SEOmatic. I implemented a SSTI unit test to try every permutation I'm aware of. And so that we'll catch any regressions in the future, because I also set it up with Scrutinizer CI so that anytime that I push to the GitHub repo, it will run the tests. And I'm going to continue to add tests as we go. Just want to add that little bit in there to make sure people knew that this actually did get done.
Okay. And so if I'm if I'm a plugin developer, I'm I want to do whatever I can to protect myself in general. It sounds like adding regression testing in general is just so a bug can't fool me twice, specifically and especially when it's a security problem, is a good thing. Mm, yep. a question for the group. I, I don't know the answer to this, but there are tools and services you can use apparently to automate attacks with known vulnerabilities on older software. Sorry, I can't say that word. Vulnerability. Are there tools and services you can use to attack yourself? Or is that something you need a security expert to probe at to get any kind of meaningful feedback on your work? No, there's there's tons you could use to um, to kind of audit yourself with. And it's they're definitely better than nothing. I think the super popular one is o- OWASP's uh, Z, Z Attack Proxy, ZAP. And they're kind of like, kind of, I don't know, static analysis tools that you can configure and they'll go through and like they'll they'll kind of probe for common ways to exploit software like patterns that software use that that they they have known ways of getting into and so like craft like we'll we'll run that against craft every now and then a couple times a year we're kind of in a privileged spot in that a lot of the agencies that end up building a site for craft whether it's for government institution or enterprise like they will run their finished sites through a security audit, either through a mm. third party audit or through they have their own internal audit they do. We fre- frequently get those results shared back with us. And so we'll go through them and we'll be like, you know, okay, this is an actual problem. This is just a problem with how you've developed your front end templates. And so we do get a lot of feedback like that. Um, and if it ends up being from a plugin, we'll, we'll contact the, the plugin developer so they can address it. There is stuff that you can do as well. I, I also wanted to make a comment. I don't remember who had mentioned, uh, you know, having timed large security releases. There's a big con to that. And you can probably ask any Windows server administrator about <laughs> Tuesdays. The issue is, is that you're, you're announcing to the world that every whatever, second Tuesday of the month, there's going to be a list of known vulnerabilities. And then there's a window that if, say, you as the website developer is not available on vacation somewhere, if you're not available to make patches on Patch Tuesday, your servers are now unpatched, but the security vulnerabilities are known to the world. So you have people who want to exploit the security issues that are now known. So it's like a hacker's starter pistol. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and and related to that, I've sort of had, and part of this is due to my inexperience, not being in a position where I'm working on a product that has these kind of security issues around it. People ask about it, and I'm really not sure how much I'm supposed to say. And I don't want to be secretive about it. I'm generally an open book and I'm transparent about everything. But you, you sort of walk this fine line of, well, I want to give these people as much information as possible, but I also don't want to publicize this so that people who might not have heard about it are are then going to start trying to exploit someone with it. You know, does anyone have any general advice on that? In my experience, there's two philosophies in the security world about this. And there's one camp that says, as soon as a vulnerability is found, you should make public the vulnerability and the exploit for for it and put it all out there. Mm. And then that Yes, 
that gives, you know, potential malicious people a way on how to exploit something because you've told them, but it also kind of lights a fire under people that need to actually fix the, perform the update. And the other camp is, well, you should keep it under wraps for as long as possible to like let people know there's a vulnerability, but keep the actual method on how to exploit it under wraps for as long as possible, typically 30 days, to give people time enough to update. And at the end of 30 days, if you haven't done that, then, well, that's that's your fault. But the problem is people are, are lazy and mm. they're not, you know, if if you don't light a fire under them, then they're just going to forget about it anyway. So which one's yeah, correct? I, I, there's not a correct way. We like the model, the model we follow is the 30 day model. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's why like, even in our change log, when there's a security thing, we, we give a vague description of it, but we don't want to say, oh, well, this class had this problem. And when you do this thing to it, then you could do crazy stuff. And now it's more like, oh, there's a potential XSS, you know, fixed a potential XSS vulnerability and then kind of leave it at that. Yeah. So, I mean, a way you can think about it is let's make an analogy. You've got uh, a car with automatic door lock. Right. And maybe there's some kind of way that it's super easy for uh, a thief to break into your car if they just do this thing. I think it's very important that you let everyone that owns the car know that, hey, this thing has got a problem. Go get a replacement key so that it's fixed it. And the the other methodology would be saying, hey, there's a problem with this. Here's exactly how you do it. If you want to, if you want to break into someone's car, all you need to do is X, Y, Z. And it seems to me that the the right way to do it, or the best way to do it, is to let the people who let everyone know that there's a problem and that they should fix it, but don't go out of your way to let people know how to exploit it. But then I've had I've had issues where I agree that people are lazy, but it's also that people are just busy and they have to prioritize things. And I've had people ask me, well, you know, like how important is it? Can you tell me? what exactly can be done and how it can be done because I need to prioritize, you know, whether I should update this thing or not now. And I can reply to them and say, I would definitely advise that you update it now, but it probably doesn't impart the importance in their mind unless I explain to them exactly what could be done. But I don't really want to do that publicly where other people could then use that maliciously. And it just, I don't know, it seems like kind of a tough spot. It is. I was going to say, that was the problem I had of telling people in the Discord forum of exactly what to look for in a compromise system, because mm. if the person that was doing the compromising is in the forum or, you know, in the Discord channel, I'm not telling them if they change where they're sticking the files or if they're, if they change from sticking crypto mining to you know, an SSH shell. So I'm basically tipping ahead of, Hey, this is, <laughs> this is how the person's doing it. But Will they change their MO in the middle of it? We we got sort of called out as a hosting provider because when we found clients that were compromised with this, not only was it burning resources on our servers, probably at a bit more density than most other VPS providers would because we do have a lot of craft sites that are hosted. And again, it's a popular plugin. Sorry, Nevin. It's okay, but we lit the fire underneath our clients by shutting their sites off or their uh, their virtual servers off, and then contacting them, explaining Mm. why. It's like, okay, we just explained to you that you're actively exploited. Somebody's doing bad things to your website, and most of our clients immediately contacted their their developers. If it was not the developer that it was our contact point, we rolled clients back to the last backup available. 
example, if or to a, a snapshot of their system, and then they they had more up to date backups versus what we provide. They were restoring to before they were compromised, and then doing updates. But I mean, we had some that took it serious enough that their developer wasn't available, so they had us keep their websites off for days until their developer was available mm. because they were more worried about what could happen. Right? You know, is their site going to be a spot where? bank phishing website is going to be mounted or do they run an e-commerce site where who knows what gets left behind are orders being compromised so we we had the extreme of why do you shut my web our website off with little to no notice avoiding the concept of yeah, you were already compromised <laughs> right and then we had the other side it was like great thanks for letting us know we've reached out to our developer we'll let you know when we want it restored right and it it's fascinating to see how both ends of that worked but that was the only other way that we can light a fire underneath i mean if we if we wrote you and said hey your website's currently doing xy bad things are they really going to read it are they really going to respond to it or is the problem just going to get worse you know in the past most of the time when we found compromised sites it was because we were getting active reports from other networks saying hey we're being attacked your ip addresses are part of a botnet and that's the first time that you you may notice that the issue is happening. In this instance, it was something a little bit more in-house controlled. We weren't impacting somebody else's network somewhere. I personally think you did the right thing, honestly, because if there's an active exploit. <laughs> yes, you know? all, all except for, I want to say there was a very, very small percentage of people that were compromised that had any issue at all with what we did. Right. There was one client, the website owner reached out and he was sort of upset until the developer was like, you do understand that you were actively hacked. And then it was like, oh, okay, yeah. well, never mind then. <laughs> well, and, and let's be honest, no matter what you do, there's going to be some tiny percentage of people that have some kind of issue with it. You know, I mean, it's just part of doing business, I think, unfortunately. Oh yeah, it is. That's oh, what yeah. I think we, we all have the same question for Andrew, which God. is what steps have you taken to ensure you will never make a mistake again? <laughs> I'm going to make mistakes again. And I think every developer that is out there is going to make mistakes again. Obviously, we try to learn from things that go wrong, but we're also human. And that's just the reality of it, that we're going to make mistakes. So one of the things that I'm going to do to try and help mitigate that is, again, getting the, the testing in there because it's an additional layer that isn't going to lie. Assuming the test is written correctly, you'll be able to find regressions. You can't test for things you don't know about, but still that will help. And also, as I'm writing code that has any kind of opening to the outside world, I'm going to be uh, extremely negative on humanity and assume that the worst is, is always going to happen. Again, the problem there is you, there, you can't think about everything and you can't come up with everything. Even the best developers in the world, which I certainly don't class myself in with, make mistakes and exploits happen. You know, I mean, it's just the reality. Mistakes are going to continue to happen. Matt, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that they, they aren't. I've actually never made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast make sure to subscribe and if you enjoy the show please write a review on itunes tell a friend retweet this episode we really appreciate it we'd also love to continue the conversation so leave us a comment on devmode.fm or find us on twitter at handle devmode.fm for the devmode.fm podcast i'm matt stein i'm patrick harrington i'm michael rog and thank you andrew for appearing yeah, you're welcome you. matthew I feel like you enjoyed this a little bit too much. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. I think you did.
definitely enjoyed this a little bit too much. You were in your glory. <laughs> I vote Matt for host from now on. Mm. I, thought, I thought Matt was pretty kind to Alec. Like, I thought it was going to be a bloodbath. Oh, God. I didn't get into the financial windfall. That would have been more fun. Yeah. Are we still recording? (laughs) Stopping the recording now.